bum bum bottom 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 bum
curated, thoughtfully deciphered collection of streaming services versus something like Netflix or Amazon Prime where it's just this giant dump of movies and you have no idea what you should watch next. But movie... I don't know why I'm promoting movie, but movie will tell you like these movies are legit or the Criterion Collection where you want to buy every single release if you had all the money in the world. So TKO is the Criterion of comics. That's what I'm saying. I love that because do you know what we're all sick of? Having to make decisions and choose stuff. <laughs> we just want someone who's smarter than us and more creative than us and has the time to select what's yeah. going to be really good. I don't like T with TKO, you can blind buy whatever they're putting Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yes. And this month, TKO is now navigating into the realm of young adult fiction. Oh, young adult fiction. I thought they exclusively did boxing comics. No, no boxing <laughs> comics, sadly. Although I think there could also be a market for young adult boxing comics. I'd read those. Yeah. But we feel very privileged to have both Junie Ba and TKO editor-in-chief Sebastian Gerner on the show today talking about their two YA books, Jalea and Scales and Scoundrels. Scales and Scoundrels, book one and two. They're dropping two graphic novels on the same day. That's super rad. Would you call that a, a one-two punch <laughs> Lisa, of graphic novels? You gotta, I, I, I really enjoyed your ring announcer voice, but you gotta <laughs> let go of the boxing metaphors. I commit very no, hard. No, I'm not yes-anding anymore with boxing. <laughs> Uh, but with Jalea and Scales and Scoundrels, we're getting sort of these interesting spins on traditional folklore type narratives, but coming from very unique points of view. Both of these books are something of thematic kindred spirits. Each of their characters um, come into the story with a sort of birthright mm. and a, a certain set of expectations imposed on them. And they both feel the pressure to conform and serve their purpose, but also find their own lives and their own paths and their own happiness. Yeah, so perfect types of stories for a young reader or an adult reader looking to make a change. The first conversation we're inviting you into is our conversation with Junie Ba, who I feel like is a revelation, yeah. like such a discovery. Yeah. Junie Ba is a writer and artist from Senegal, and he takes West African folklore and melds it with all of these other influences from his youth. You've got some manga in there. You've got Cartoon Network. There's also like a video game vibe yeah, to it. It's yeah. just so intensely creative and funny. Yeah, yeah very funny. I feel like... I've never read anything like this, but I, I feel like I know some of the DNA of it. It's like familiar yes. and new. And I, I love starting the conversation with Junie with those influences, talking Cartoon Network, talking that manga, talking Justice League. Uh, but I don't want to spoil too much. We're going to get into it right now here with Junie. So before going into this conversation, I'm going to give you some of the basic plot. And a jelly is like a mix of a poet laureate slash historian who is in service to some kind of royalty. So Awa serves Prince Mansour, but they're also kind of living in this 
post-royalty world. There's been this massive event that has undermined their system, and she seems to be the only person who's taking the old way at all seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, she expresses that with her general disgust to Prince Mansoor and the other jelly who are using their cultural talents to just like be Instagram famous. So they go on a quest to the White Tower where the wizard lies that apparently kickstarted this apocalypse, this event. Uh, so that's like the basic gist of Jalea. And I think that's really all you need to know to have some context for this conversation. And when you reach the end of the chat with Juni Ba, don't press stop because we have another chat with Sebastian Gurner talking about why TKO is now getting into the YA space and giving us, uh, well, he's telling us the history of how Scales and Scoundrels went from image comics over to TKO. So that's a really fun conversation as well. But first, let's get into it with Juni. Yeah, let's go. Junie, thank you so much for joining us on Comic Book Couples Counseling today. Uh, I, this, You are our first international guest, and so I really appreciate you working with us to get a proper recording schedule down. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for the invitation. I really like the name, by the way. Thank you. It, it warns people that we do like to get a little squishy, a little <laughs> soft. We like to really get in there to the, the touchies and the feelies. Yeah, for, for those that have not uh, listened to the show before, what we do at Comic Book Couples Counseling is we take a comic book couple, we pair it with a self-help guide usually, and we use that self-help guide to uh, figure out the romantic woes of that couple as well as the romantic woes between Lisa and myself. And then when we have guests, we like to extract life lessons from them. Yes. To, to help better our own, our own lives as, as readers. <laughs> And, and livers. So prepare yourself. Okay. Uh, all right. So I guess actually where I wanted to start with this conversation is with the incredibly adorable author photo at the back of the book oh uh, where you are holding up some sort of Transformers Power Ranger thing. <laughs> it's a Spider-Man robot. Oh, Spider-Man robot even better. <laughs> uh, more on brand with our podcast. I, and I was just kind of curious because you you mentioned the, or the bio mentions how you're the product of what happens when Cartoon Network meets your average Senegalese boy. And can you you know explain that a little bit more? Like, what is the influence of Cartoon Network uh, on your brain and your aesthetic? Okay, so I was born I was born in ninety two, uh, which I, I feel like is important to understand the type of uh, influences I had in terms of media. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I was born and raised in, in Senegal, but TV was very much ruled by American and French media at the time. So mm -hmm. I grew up watching like the, the, the earliest uh, TV memory I have is Zina Warrior Princess. <laughs> nice uh, and and like it goes with like preschool uh, shows uh, there was one about a turtle called Franklin I don't know if Americans have yes yes yeah, yep. so like, yeah. So, so uh, it was it was a diet of like Hercules and and Xena and and Franklin the turtles and and a bunch of other stuff, including French stuff. And 
uh, and then Dragon Ball and Senseiya, so the, the, the more Japanese influence. And then towards when I was 11, I think, 11 or 12, I had grown up to that point uh, seeing Cartoon Network on the TV of other people. Mm. Um, mostly the classic thing of you're, you're a child of parents with limited means and every once in a while you, you either meet a new friend who has a big house and cable TV. And like, I, I always use the example of, um, that neighbor I had, I visited him once. I walk into the living room. He's watching justice league. And, he, mm. and upon seeing me arrive, he just turned the TV off. Like it was the most normal and casual thing in the world to, to turn the TV off on the Justice League, which to mm-hmm. me was was insane because I, I was still tr- trying to like wrap my brain around the fact that such a concept existed in the first place because I had never mm-hmm. seen it before. Uh, so, so Cartoon Network was a bit of that that uh, faraway land of very interesting looking uh, cartoons that I could not get because I didn't have cable. And yeah, and and. When I was 12 or 11, my dad managed to get it because the price dropped drastically, and I, it became my life. I would mm-hmm. wake up in the morning, go to his room, and then spend, spend my entire day there just watching cartoons. And my grandparents got the, the, the channel as well, so even when I went there, I started watching the TV, the, the TV mostly for that. Uh, and... It, it was. I think the main draw for me was the visuals, the very, the very interesting way that they would take real life and sort of simplify it into very clear shapes, and how they would play with the laws of reality. Because cartoons have their own rules of how they work, mm. and and there is a very amazing artistry in being able to do, say, um, Dexter's Lab. And having his sister who's walking around with her, like she's supposed to be a ballerina, but when her, but when she walks around because she has those big feet, it, it, it always goes. <laughs> 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 yeah. And no one ever, no one ever comments on the fact that that she sounds like like mashed potatoes every time she walks. <laughs> but it works, and like I was fascinated by this. I, I was I was amazed by how you can tell stories using visuals and sounds and and a, a, a system of logic that doesn't make sense at face value. But if you actually look at it, it's sort of its own logic and inner workings. I love starting with like Dexter's Lab and how these these narratives influenced you as a child and now as a creator. Because uh, Jalea is all about the power of narrative. And um, Awa is learning how, like, when you are the keeper of the narrative, you are the most powerful person of all. And yeah. and that that is um, uh, really actually a huge, enormous responsibility. So how is it for you being a keeper of this narrative of the story that you created and does it feel powerful and important and, and what responsibilities come with it? Um, there was, there was a moment of like huge pressure because the, the initial reason why I made the book was simply because I wanted to do something fun with the folklore of where I was born. Mm-hmm. So there was no particular desire to, to, 
make up for a lack of anything. Um, but then I, I naturally, I started doing research and I looked into the usual representation of, of Africa in and outside of the, of the continent. And that's when you start realizing how little there is of it. And you sort of feel this, like you, you can see how uh, people, especially on the internet would tend to be very critical, very easily. And there is a bit of a, of a weight of, you have to do this right. Uh, so I, I think the, the first thing that I had to learn to do was sort of let go of that form of pressure because I'm only just one person and I can only just make one book. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the, the biggest thing for me, I guess, was I want to try and make something that I feel is useful and speaks to humanity as a whole, I guess. Like it sounds, it sounds very grandiose when you say it like that, mm-hmm. but it's more of a, I wanted to use the very specific folklore of one space on on the planet, but talk about things that are that are relevant all around the world. And, mm-hmm. and I guess in the end, what I hope most is that um, it's going to resonate with people who don't even come from from my side of the planet at all. Mm. Well, we can say that that's that that mission is accomplished you know because like specificity does create universality yeah yeah it does at the beginning of the novel awa is contrasted with the other uh jelly who are using their 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 narrative powers for money and fame instead of continuing the jalea traditions like and, and I love your little play on words with the the DJ Eli. <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought that was very clever. Like, who did these G- DJ Eli represent for you? These these people who are not taking narratives seriously. Um, I don't necessarily have individuals in mind, um, mm-hmm. but it's more it's more so a sort of low key commentary on on the evolution of the the. Um, I don't want to say the profession because that's not the right word. Uh, essentially, the the, um, the skills used by by your typical jelly are very. They're supposed to be taught from father to son, and they're supposed to be very uh, carefully guarded and, and kept. Um, but the evolution of of society is such that their position has essentially disappeared now. And aside from finding a private patron somewhere, you're not really gonna, you're not really gonna sustain uh, as a, as a dearly anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be interesting to have. It's sort of a larger question on when you have access to to art, when you you have the, the sort of the ability to create art that speaks that speaks to people. What do you do with it? And I thought it would be interesting for someone like her. Who has who was raised with this idea that you have to use your skills for a very particular, very important purpose, and she's seeing society change in ways that she doesn't recognize, and she is sort of a bit judgmental of that as well. When, like, I I, I, I suppose it would be funny to have like a scene where she actually gets to talk to that guy and realizes <laughs> that he's not actually that va- vapid and uninteresting as he as she thinks he is. 
So yeah, the, the the basic idea, I guess, is I was watching a music video by by a Nigerian musician, and I thought most of the music that these guys make is about money and sex and material wealth. And I feel like someone like Awa would probably have a lot of issues with that, considering what she was raised with. Mm-hmm. I, I super relate to Awa at the beginning of the story and how crabby she is, that she feels like she's like the only person who's doing what they're actually supposed to be doing. Um, uh, do, you, do you relate to her in any way? Oh, yes. My God. She's a... Uh, one aspect that I've always wanted to have to keep in mind when, when writing her was that I always wanted her to be fundamentally right, but to close-minded to really do something useful and constructive with the fact that she was right Mm -hmm. Uh, which is which is a trait that I tend to have I tend to be very stubborn and uh, especially when I was younger I would often have a certain idea of how things should be and not necessarily look at the nuances or the fact that other people have different experiences and the entire book is about how she sort of realizes that while her opinions are not necessarily wrong, she needs to understand that the the material context she is in has changed and allows now for more nuance than she was in, uh, initially exposed to. And especially because a lot of what she based her, her ideals on is actually a big lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, and on the other side of that, I also had the other side of my psyche, I guess, which is also who's all about, you have this pressure of being from a certain kind of background and you're, you're expected to behave a certain way. And the whole point of his arc is more so maybe it's not so much about living up to what you're expected to do, but rather figuring out what your own way of being is. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, one of the big things that I keyed into towards the end of the book was this idea, like you go on this journey uh, with a certain understanding. You think you know the story, but then you learn that you don't know the story. And the revelation of understanding that you don't know everything, and once you realize that there is more knowledge to be gained, then you can start to know things Mm. in actuality. Yeah. Um, And I'm just kind of wondering, like, you know, in in telling the story and adapting and putting your spin on these tales from Senegal, you're you're taking stories that, that have been passed down through many generations and have morphed and uh, changed into new ways, and now you're changing it into a new way. And so what is that relationship that you're having with the tale that was a tale before you took a hold of it and also radicalized it and changed it? Mm. A lot of what I use is stuff that I heard about but never actually looked into before I started doing research for this. Mm. So it's, it's one of those things where I think the fact that I'm now living in France has made me way more appreciative of my home country's culture. Because when you're living right in the middle of it, you don't you don't have the same curiosity as, as you have for things outside that seem more exotic or interesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, 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 like the big the big thing I was into when I was a teenager was um, 
Japanese culture because of manga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's that wasn't to say that I thought the Japanese culture was be- was better or more interesting. It's just that it's different and it's it's packaged in in those comics in such a way that you're like that looks cool I want to know more about it. And and because you live right in the middle of your own country you don't feel the desire to really delve into the details just yet because it's always there and you don't feel any, any, you don't miss it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to France, I, I started looking way more into my own culture because I figured I've never seen uh, uh, the kind of book that Japanese people make out of their own culture, like in, like manga stuff. And I, I've never seen that. I would like to. And so I would, I should probably just make it myself. And mm. I took that as an opportunity to look into my own folklore and the folklore of communities uh, next to my own country. And I, I did learn a lot of stuff. Like the, the um, One of the good things about it, I guess, and, and the reason why I feel like the book sort of gets a bit didactic towards the end, is that researching for this book actually provided a lot of content for my own life a lot of like life lessons and yeah uh wisdom from figures that again i had always heard about but never actually looked into what they wrote or what they said and actually doing it i have i feel like i have i had a bunch of like symposiums with with old african men who just taught me lessons mm-hmm. about life, men and women, really, because like the first example I had in mind was a man, but uh, I, I still, I, I would play and replay uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's videos and read her books. Uh, so yeah, the, the um, it was sort of like an open window to the kind of wisdom you can get if you look into your own history. And that's also why I wanted to have the back matter of the book, because I want people to be able to go back to the source and look at that stuff for themselves and actually sort of get the same kind of content, I guess. I I super appreciated the back matter. And I also super appreciated that it was in the back. So like, as you're reading the story, you're familiarizing your, yourself with the terms and, you know, within the context of the story. And then by the end of the story, um, you have all of this curiosity now. And so then by going through the back of the book, you you gain a greater understanding yeah. of the content of the book. Good. And um, I also really appreciated your use of the symbology throughout the book. Yeah. And those cues later in the book telling you to like flip back through the pages and tr- treat these symbols kind of like Easter eggs. Like now you get to go back and you get to, to find these symbols and it encourages the reader to really engage uh, with your art. And um, when you were crafting the story, were you considering like re-readability and re-lookability and the idea of like, cause this is a YA book and um, I can really see uh, a young person going back to this book and kind of peeling the lessons back like in layers. Yeah. And re- revisiting it over and over and over again. Yeah. So, so did you have that idea of people are going to reread this book and um, do you have, like, what is your relationship with rereadability or rewatchability? Uh, yeah, I was hoping for that. 
um, mostly because I really like the idea of like creating incentives for someone to want to come back, uh, mm-hmm. either because there's, there's actual meat in the story or there's little things that you want to go back and find. Mostly because I don't really... There's a story of a, a, a Belgian comic creator, Franquin. Uh, he, th- th- there's this story of how a kid came, came up to him at a signing and gave him a very shoddy looking copy that like the pages were torn and there were stains on it and everything. And the kid was feeling shameful because he, he didn't want to make it seem like he didn't give a, give a damn about the, the book. And the author actually said, I would much rather sign a book like this because it shows me that you've actually read and reread and carried it around and cared about it because because you like it essentially mm-hmm. and that's sort of what I want like I want people to to go back and read it again and put it down and come back I don't know a few years later maybe and read it once again and get something new out of it and and like that's I think like that that's why you like a piece of media it's not just about experiencing it once and then moving on and getting to the next thing i want to make something that actually that people will want to keep and there's no yeah. point in them keeping it if they don't read it again <laughs> right yeah no lisa and i talk uh, a lot about this and actually lisa was uh, a tremendous help in that regard for my own uh interactions with my comic books you know because growing up here in the states we tend to like think of comic books like oh these are collector's items they're polybagged they're chromium we got to put them in mylar and seal them away forever uh and through my relationship with lisa and you know the way that she just tackles a comic she just tears into a comic if i've read a book you could tell yeah (laughs) she cracks i'm destructive yeah And, and and so like that's my goal now is to really interact with the physical copy of the book. And to Lisa's point uh, with your book, you know, you even have, you know, you have the back matter, but also periodically through the comic, you'll have a note to remind the reader that there is back matter coming up and you'll want to come back after you've read the entire tale. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems to me, as Lisa's discussing, you're really trying to interact with your reader that you can't see at the moment while you're creating. Yeah. The, there's a, I think I have a bit of a meta, meta strain in my brain because I'm, I'm working on my next uh, series and there's, there's like little meta jokes in it. So mm-hmm. I think I have... I think I, I find it interesting to be able to actually speak directly to the reader in a way that that lets them know that there is a story going on, that it's for them, that they are invited to engage in it and not just uh, pass through and then move on. And, and yeah. even in the case of the Aliyah, I, I feel like that suits the material really well because it's based on the kind of stories that would initially be told around the campfire and... The, the, the person telling them would actually interact with the people they were telling the story to. And, and even the structure, like the fact that you have different stories like this, the base reason for this was uh, I'm not a big fan of how most comic books now tend to be series oriented, as in mm-hmm. every issue is only a piece of a story. Mm-hmm. And it always, le- it always leaves me uns- unsatisfied, especially if it lasts a long time. 
because if it's like say a, a run of five issues, I can I can perfectly go with it because it's fine. But if it's like a super long ongoing and it never gets <laughs> to an actual point or end by at a certain point, I'm just like it's it's been going on for a while and I'm just tired. So <laughs> I I I wanted to be able to make something where every chapter, every every issue, so to speak, you read, you actually get a complete story that ties back into something bigger. I, I super appreciate uh, like the, the idea of like, let's deliver a story. Like if there's a front cover and a back cover, there should be a story in there. And um, like you're being edited through TKO, who has this kind of philosophy of, okay, we're going to de- deliver the single issues and the graphic novel at the same time so that like, okay, you can engage in a serialized way. And if you read that first issue and you're like, okay, I need the whole story now, it's available. You know what I mean? Um, And other publishers will publish half of a story arc in like a 9.99 book and, Nine ninety nine, if you're lucky, Lisa. Yeah, and you go like, uh, and you finish it, and you're just immediate rest. You have no idea how the story ends, and, and that is irritating. So, I don't have a question. Well, I mean, my question would be like, how do you feel about your partnership with TKO? It's such a new model, but like one that I find and Lisa finds very exciting. Yeah. Originally, I wanted to publish it in French, uh, in France, and and it proved a, a complicated endeavor. Let's say. Um. And I, I ended up following the advice that my family was giving me, which was, uh, you're not gonna, you're not, you're not going to find a French publisher for this that actually lives up to what you want, or is, or is even gonna understand what you're trying to do. So, how about you just go to the US because they are more likely to be interested in outside, uh, outside the box stuff. And mm. so I started looking into American publishers and TKO, TKO had existed for about a year when I found them. Uh, I sent a message saying I had something to, sub- to submit. They, uh, Sebastian Gurner, the, the editor, uh, took it and, and they were interested. So we did it. And, um, the best thing was probably, aside from from the more uh, financial aspect, where I was able to work on the book without having to worry about um, money and all that stuff. I, I was, I was, yeah. I, I could work for like a, a, a full year on this book without having to worry about doing something else on the side. Uh, but aside from that, just the, the the work itself was extremely satisfying because. Because Sebastian is a very good editor to have, he is extremely reactive, very imaginative, and very able to understand what he's supposed to understand and what he's not. Um, <laughs> like the, the, in a case, in the case of a book like this, a feedback that I would get when I first started doing stories of this vein was in, in art school, and the teachers would often be kind of lost, not really understanding. Uh, the troops, I guess, uh, uh, or the, the type of fantasy that it was. And because it was based on folklore that they didn't know about, they would often, they would show a certain lack of wanting to, to step outside of what they knew. 
Mm. And Sebastian doesn't do that. He is very aware when he's looking into a story of what needs to be understood for the story to work and what sort of references or little uh, social cues he's not supposed to get, but it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, he was, the best thing for that was that just sending my storyboards and he replies with this works and this doesn't and how about we do this instead. And it sounds like mm. the simplest thing but it's so effective. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's amazing to have, to have someone to bounce off of who is able to fully understand how to best do, how to best contribute and, and give you the best ideas. Yeah. The, the book would not be, would not be what it is if Sebastian hadn't been there to sort of uh, help me organize and add new entire sequences sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we'll be talking to Sebastian on Thursday. We'll let him know. <laughs> uh, you know, what is super exciting about your book right now is we're recording this on June 1st and pre-orders are shipping today uh, for Jalea. And if you go online, I feel like there's a lot of excitement around this book within the comics community, especially on comics Twitter right now mm-hmm, where yeah. I live. And can you sense the hunger for this kind of story for Afro fantasy fiction right now, uh, the way that I seemingly sense that enthusiasm? Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it's been something that I've, that I've been aware for a while, um, mostly because I, I first started making stories like this a few years ago, like three or four. And, I joined a, a group of other creators uh, called Kugali, who, which was created by Nigerian people, and we we saw the the, um, the signs of interest, let's say, and mm-hmm. and we were literally just a bunch of punk kids, uh, many of us fresh fresh out of either art school or business school stuff like that, and we could sense that people were sort of getting tired of always getting the same things. So there was an interest for new kinds of stories and aesthetics to look at. And we just arrived at the right moment, I suppose. Um, There is definitely a sort of like progress between the old generation of comic book creators and us now grew up with it and mm. have like it seems that we are the first generation of African kids who both grew up with more Western or Asian uh, culture products and have the means to create some of that stuff for ourselves mostly because my dad's generation they had French comics but they didn't have or, or American comics but they didn't have the internet to spread whatever they were doing. Mm. And yeah, and, and yeah, the, the the progress on that front is absolutely great. Like, the, I would not be able to do the job I'm doing right now if I didn't have the internet to both subject me to new things and share the stuff I do. Because when I contacted TKO, Sebastian's response was, "We don't usually take submissions, but I've been following your work for a while. I want to know what you have to to, to show us." Had I not awesome. had I not had the internet and Kugali, I would not have that kind of platform to even pique the interest of an editor. 
Awesome. Uh, that's, that's inspiring to hear though. Um, Junie Ba, you know, the book's coming out or the book is out for like, you know, it's, it's shipping now. Uh, Lisa and I, we read it digitally, but we, we are- we're excited to get our hands on a physical <laughs> copy. Yeah. I'm going to ruin your book. Yeah. Lisa's, <laughs> Lisa's going to ruin your book. Uh, and, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm very excited to see what it looks like in the hand. Um, now our listeners are going to have links in the show notes where they can find TKO's website, where they can order books, uh, hunt it down at their local comic book shops, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, but for our listeners, where can they find you online? Where can they, uh, keep track of you because they're going to want to now going forward? Um, so you have my Instagram, which is where I post most of the, the art. Uh, which is just my name, Juni.ba. Uh, and then Twitter is more where I sort of like think about stuff, I guess. Mm. So you're going to get a lot of me ranting about Disney movies. Uh, yeah. And, and same, it's, it's my name with an underscore, Juni underscore bar. And, and yeah, mo- most of it is just me talking about whatever piece of media I'm, I'm interested in. I'm watching Dawson's Creek, so I, I'm tweeting a bunch about Dawson's Creek at the moment. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I, I share process stuff, like the development of the pages and stuff like that. So, it, Well, it we saw your tweet about 101 Dalmatians yes. and uh, how Disney films used to be a vibe. And that is also something that Lisa and I have been talking about. Having just watched Cruella... Yeah. Uh, the live action remake. Yeah. Uh, I- what I what I like miss about Disney movies is that that they're getting away from the musical. I'm like, come on, you guys! <laughs> the musical is what made them magical. Yeah, I mean, okay. The, the 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 thing that I found interesting in the the 101 animation case is that I grew up with both both the 90s uh, period, right, and. Mostly movies from the the the, the 60s, 70s uh, era of, of Disney films, and that era didn't have musicals, but they had right. a mood. Well, like I suppose um, Jungle Book was a musical, you could say, but they had they had a mood that that sort of is missing for me now. And, and like watching watching the the Dimensions, I was thinking uh, I want to do something like this of like the whole the, the old Disney movies from the 60s vibe of just a bunch of animals having a, a, a sort of cutesy adventure like the Aristocats and there is a very wholesome vibe like the thing I like the most about the, the 101 Dalmatians is that it's literally about two parents who lost their children and everyone in the community around is doing their best to help to help them get their kids back yeah I love yeah. that aspect. It's a very simple story. It's very effective. It doesn't require much uh, in ways of like special effects and, and action scenes, but it is a very wholesome, like it's the, it's the type of stuff I would want to, to show to my kids in terms of the kind of mm. themes and, and messages it has. 
Yeah. Mood and character, uh, something that is sorely lacking from the recent batch of live actions, yeah. uh, but is not lacking <laughs> from Jaleer. <laughs> to, to get back to the comic book. Uh, Junie, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, if you can't tell, we're instant fans of your work. We're very excited for your follow-up comics, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's Always there. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> I never want that conversation to end. I feel like there's a piece of my heart that is still talking and conversing with Junie Ba. I, you know, you said this at the start of the episode, but I agree that I I think Junie Ba is going to explode into something major. And Jalea is a place that we should all get on now because his work is going to be incredibly significant within this industry. I'm, I'm staking my claim there right now. Junie Ba is a master. And I think a really wonderful life lesson to take away from that conversation is like, go to the thing, like what's the piece of you you don't hear mm. anybody talking about? Yeah. And dig, dig deeper into that because that's going to be what makes you interesting. Yeah, that's what makes you special. Yeah, so a very inspired conversation. Uh, this conversation we're now about to get to with Sebastian Gerner, equally inspiring. And what's great about it is we start in a place of what is YA? Because Sebastian is the editor-in-chief, he can speak to the industry and the market in a way that Junie Ba cannot. And then he's, you know, then he's like, okay, so this is why we're going into the YA space, and this is why I'm bringing my own story into it. Scales and Scoundrels, done in collaboration with the artist Galad. Scales and Scoundrels takes place on the sunny side of fantasy. <laughs> so there are elves and, and knights and giants. Dragons. But it's more Hobbit than it is Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I love I, I love when Sebastian talks about, you know, uh, post-Game of Thrones, grim, dark fantasy, and how he wanted to offer an antidote to that style of fantasy fiction. Yeah, it's not all incest, you guys. <laughs> it's not all incest. Put that on the book. <laughs> that's, that's the quote from comic book couples counseling, Scales and Scoundrels. It's not all incest, you guys. <laughs> it centers around the character of Luvander, who is a treasure hunter. And at the beginning of the story, we get the sense that this wanderlust comes from some kind of past mm. that they're escaping. And they have this like fierce independence, but along the way, they do end up teaming up with Prince Aki, Koro, and Dorma, each of whom come from a different area of fantasy and each have their own unique perspective, but because they have this common goal of this treasure, they form this kind of really sweet, yeah. odd family. Yeah, I really, really love this group. And I especially appreciate what uh, Sebastian does with that group in book two. That's right. So book one is all about like getting the band together. How are people who are so different gonna get along? Oh, they love each other? And then book two, they th then go on and have their own little side adventures, but you have that sense of family tethering them together. Yeah, it's really, 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 really special. And Galad's art is 
incredible. So cute so and cute. sweet and inviting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very uh, wallpaper friendly for mm, my yes. uh, phone. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think we've built up Sebastian Gurner enough. Let's get into the conversation and then we'll meet you back on the other side for a classic CBCC outro. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us here in the Love Nest at Comic Book Couples Counseling. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, not as excited as we are to have you, I can tell you that. Uh, and I, I, I guess where I really want to start this conversation is it's a new book for you, but it's also a new baby. How exhausted are Human you? Human baby. Yeah. Yes. A lot of babies happening right now. Comic <laughs> babies and real babies. Um, I'm okay. He, uh, our, our baby boy is, is just over three months and he is oddly enough, uh, either he's spoiling us or just giving us a break, but he's sleeping quite well at night right now. And, um, so I feel very, uh, I'm missing out on the, on the one collective trauma that all new parents, uh, love to talk about, but you know, he's, there's still plenty of time for him to, uh, to give us a uh, shellacking. So, um, but we're excited. It is a, it is a very strange new experience to be uh, making comics for a living anyway. And now having, you know, another mouth to feed with that. It's definitely, um, give it, putting a spring in my step. Um, <laughs> well, congratulations uh, so on much. both fronts. Uh, you know, we're big TKO fans here at comic book couples counseling, and we're so excited to see, you guys embracing YA and this seems like a really big YA month with your two volumes of Scales and Scoundrels out, but also Junie Ba's uh, Jalea out as well. Um, and I'm just kind of curious about what it means for you to be bringing TKO into the YA space. Yeah. I mean, when we started TKO, um, we wanted to launch out of, you know, kind of the, the core comic book market, which was more adult oriented. Well, even though they're like all of the, the, the TKOs um, to date publications were geared more towards an adult audience. While there were, you know, certain books you could definitely, you know, kind of go to a younger audience. I think the fearsome Dr. Fong would have yeah. worked great for, uh, for younger readers as, as well as some others. But I think with this, it's, it's both kind of embracing um, YA kind of a younger audience specifically, um, but also a, a different format, you know, where we, we felt that there's certain types of books and comics. And I think especially younger readers who in this day and age are just reared on manga more, which, which tends to be more page, you know, quantity heavy books. Um, we wanted to give our creators that we were working with the, the format and the space they need. So, um, you know, where our trade paperbacks, the wave books end up being about the same size. This is like uh, the format is slightly smaller, so a little digesty. Um, you know, geared towards bookstores, geared towards libraries, school libraries. Um, just tweaking the format a tiny bit and taking that into account, I think, will help uh, these books reach you know the audience that we know is out there and is, is, is really clamoring um, for for these types of stories. So it was always something that we wanted to do. It was just a question of kind of rolling out. Uh, core TKO, as it were, and then um, in the same way that we did the shorts, which are these really fun, you know, kind of twenty-page, one-and-done um, little little comics. Um, TKO has really like started stretching its muscle into different different types of comic book formats, which is really exciting. You know, both as an editor and as a as a writer of, of comics, um, I love to be able to see how you know form can uh, inform content and um, 
you know, just on a personal note, it feels really good to be like holding, you know, like kind of hefty 280 page books, uh, uh, of scales, um, and putting out two at once is, is, you know, uh, kind of a flex as well. So we're, really, <laughs> we're, we're very, very excited to, to be putting these books out between scales and Jellia. Um, you know, it's, I, I think it's a really strong showing. We love a digest size yeah, because yeah. you can really spoon a digest <laughs> where like with flappies, you have to like either sit up or lay on your belly cause they're flat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. As both a writer and an editor in chief, like how would you define YA as a genre? It's not really um, a genre, but like what, what makes a YA book YA? I think YA is, see, this is odd because I was thinking of, of coming, growing up reading. And, and I think for me, YA was just Stephen King. Like that was just <laughs> same word kind of not meant to be read by, by kids. But I think everyone, like I know a lot of, you know, kids who were like, 13, 14, 15, and you grab it and you, you just absolutely terrify the pants off of you. Um, for me personally, I know that there's probably more um, clinical or market focused YA. I think YA is when you, you make, you make a delineation into adult content material without it feeling so hopelessly dreary. Like there's mm-hmm. still, there's still fantasy involved. There's still, um, you know, despite YA being dystopia being like a big YA uh, genre, I think that it's kind of the, the the gap, right? It's where you can retain some childlike sense of wonder and hope and, and a little naivete while also embracing the fact that the world isn't as it was kind of presented to you if you were lucky as a child. Um, and I think it makes it a very vibrant um, genre because it is actually quite hard to, to nail down. I think that YA is also interesting that as many younger readers uh, there are of YA, there's also a lot of adult readers of YA uh-huh. and people who go back and read those kind of books because I guess we know when there's still a, the book market especially, there's, there's still the sense that once you get to a certain age, you should not, quote-unquote, be reading certain types of stories. Um but I think in comics, it's, it's really interesting that YA is just, it's almost like a lot of things that, that tradition or like at least an American Western, you know, kind of superhero infused, you know, the, the comic book culture here is still very, very much considered or, or viewed to be a superhero, a type of fair that a lot of the kind of comics that I really love have, have kind of trickled over into YA where you have more fantasy, you have more sci-fi, you have more just kind of playfulness in tone and characters where it, it doesn't follow um, these kind of very, um, delineated paths that, that superheroes kind of create for, for storytelling sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's a, that's a longer answer to your question. Um, no, I, I love it. A really uh, just exciting way, because I think that the term itself is actually more like, Oh look, it's, it's books that young kids are reading, which always, you know, shocks and amazes parents or older people. But I think kids are actually always reading. They just are a lot more, um, discerning about what it is that they're reading they're, they know a lot more than than adults than what they want to read and what they want to read a lot of mm-hmm. um and i think that that's where manga kind of stole the show for for many many years and it's exciting to see now um you know western creators who themselves were reared on manga bringing some of that um visual and and thematic and narrative a kind of um, tradition to um you know western storytelling so this is gr- a great transition. I have a lot of questions about Scales and Scoundrels. And um, so my first question is, like, when when, uh, when you think of a reader of Scales and Scoundrels flipping through the pages, who do you see? 
Um, I would love it. The, 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 the grand plan when we launched the original Scales and Scoundrels with Image back um, in 2017 was that we would have readers somewhere between eight and nine, ten maybe. Um, we, it's all ages. Like I do genuinely think that if you can read and can like to read comics, that Scales is a book for you. We can confirm. Yeah. Um, but the idea was that it was someone who may have not, like if it's on the younger end of the spectrum, you know, if, if you were a kid, I, I wanted to, we wanted to embrace fantasy. Um, Galad and myself, um, who, who is a wonderful artist of Scales and Scoundrels, when we started talking, um, this was in the heyday of, of like grimdark fantasy and, and Game of Thrones was, you know, winning Oscars and Emmys and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And um, as much as we have an appreciation for, for the, you know, that kind of stuff, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of like dark fantasy myself, we started talking about when we read The Hobbit, specifically not Lord of the Rings, but The Hobbit, which is a lot more playful. It's right before, you know, Tolkien kind of found his inner DM and, and then started creating <laughs> all these worlds and languages. That it was really, it left a lot of a, it left a lot for the reader to imagine. Um, it left a lot of room to kind of just, you wanted to be in that fantasy world, unlike a lot of modern or, or, or dark fantasy. Like, I do not want to go to Westeros. I'm not really sure I want to go to Middle Earth. (laughs) It seems like a depressing, sad, and horrifying place. And I think we wanted to primarily craft something that that seemed like a fantasy world you actually wanted to spend time in with characters that you might love to have an adventure with. But then also create kind of like a wanderlust sense of, um, this is a world I really want to get lost in. And if the comic doesn't spend enough time in one place or one locale um, to kind of incite the reader to, to, you know, take their imagination and stay there and maybe, you know, write their own story, you know, in this part of the world or that part of the world. All the while still, you know, like kind of embracing fantasy and also poking a tiny bit of fun at it. So I think we always described scales as like an all ages book, but you know, for, for the young and the young at heart. And, um, it, it wasn't the one reader. I think it was hopefully a kind of, a kind of fantasy that we felt was, was kind of not being not was, was hard to find, you know, that fantasy kind of became very segmented into different genres of fantasy, either high or low or post or dark or grim dark and all this stuff. And we were just kind of like, let's do a fantasy book where you don't know what's going to happen. Like we play with tropes. We have some classic, you know, allusions to, to classic kind of Tolkienian fantasy. Um, but then we also like turn it on its head and, 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 you know, hopefully take the reader to places that if this is your first kind of time reading about dragons and elves and goblins and orcs and stuff like that, um, you know, if you're one of the, our younger readers, then we're, you're in for a treat. And if you're one of the older, you know, readers who have, you know, who speak orcish, maybe <laughs> we're also going to start, you know, maybe, um, subverting some of those expectations, hopefully. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, uh, especially in terms of game of Thrones coming out and then suddenly the fantasy genre is this grim, dark world. It kind of reminds me of what happened to Batman after the dark Knight returns comes out. Yeah. And like how we've had like this very similar dark 
uber serious Batman for decades as a result of that comics popularity. And where I am now with that character is craving something with a little lightness in it. And so like when you come across something like the Batman brave and the bold cartoon series Mm -hmm. that embraces silver age, it feels like this tremendous breath of fresh air. And that breath of fresh air is what I felt reading Scales and Scoundrels. And I think it's also why I am now gravitating in my 40s to YA comic books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's... um, I mean, you're speaking to a larger, especially with Batman, I think that's a great example where both between Batman and Watchmen, they were both, um, you know, these great... uh, What's the word? Um, Deconstructions of the Mm -hmm. superhero mythology, but then... It, it almost seems like it, every, everyone was just like, Oh, it's great. Deconstructed. Like, let's never put it back together again. And it's kind mm-hmm. of, been, you know, these, these, both of these books, Watchmen and, and the dark Knight returns, which are supposed to be highly critical and also were, you know, massively political books for the time that they mm-hmm. were published in people kind of people, a certain subset of readers kind of like clinically, uh, you know, exercise the, the political component and just love the, the grittiness of it. And I think that that bled into popular culture, you know, a lot. I, I think, you know, almost like the films of Zack Snyder, I think are permeated with this kind of like ultra violent, uh, grim darkness without, without any of the political subtext that, that informed, you know, Frank Miller and Alan Moore's original works. So, yeah, I think that that fits to, um, to what I was saying earlier that YA kind of became this, this almost like catch all uh, vessel underneath a lot of, um, you know, more elevate what we call elevated genre. Now the comics are super serious. We kind of forgot that they're also supposed to be super fun and colorful and that you can, and this is something we wanted to do with scales is, is, is present a narrative that is fun and is an adventure and that, you know, a young kid can read it and, and really get swept away with it while also delivering a kind of narrative that does, you know, doesn't shy away from going into certain areas of the human or, or elfin experience. Mm. Um, to, to showcase, you know, that loss and, and perseverance and overcoming hardship is, is part of any adventure. And so it's not all, you know, sunshine and, and, and dungeon raids, but, um, that was the balance that we kind of struck, you know, not, not knowing at all whether or not we would be able to pull it off, but I was really heartened by Galad's capacity to, um, to draw, just incredible characters that I wanted to spend time with and then also just convey, you know, complicated emotions that, that aren't immediately, you know, readable or easily digestible in a way that almost made them feel as if they are. Um, so it's just a, it's such a joy to write for and, 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 and create with um, a creator like that. Well, for me, like the story within scales and scoundrels is all about like balancing expectations. Like you're, balancing the expectations of your culture and your family and and what you want for yourself. And then also what actually makes you happy. And I think like, why for you is this such an important message for young people? And is it a message you wish you had gotten as a young creative person? Um, so when a lot and I started out kind of setting the, like we knew we wanted to do a fantasy, but we kind of wanted to find the heart of it. And I think Mm -hmm. that, it came, you know, there's both a desire to do, to do like a classic fantasy, but also imbue it with something that I hadn't really seen in fantasy. And, and I think generational conflict is something that has always 
fascinated me. It's something that I've struggled with myself and it's not, it's almost like in a softer sense where you're born, I don't know, maybe into a sense of this is how your life should be. Not even because your parents are, you know, overbearing or demanding, but because, um, you just expect to go or be drifting a certain way and then you're drifting somewhere else and how to reconcile with that. And I think that in fantasy, especially there's always these grand, you know, uh, Kings and Queens and their, and their children automatically become princes and princesses and, and, and perpetuate, you know, that system. And I was always kind of like, we wanted every character in scales to kind of struggle with where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and where they're going because of who they are. Um, and to have those struggles resonate both amongst themselves and also kind of poke that, that little, you know, the scoundrel element of, of the title that it's, um, that it's okay to not know and that it's okay to kind of wander and it's okay to drive off the beaten path, both because that felt honest and, and kind of true to us. And also because it's really fun to have characters who don't just want to pick up the mantle and follow in their parents, you know, footsteps, even if their parents may be, you know, like immortal dragons or, you know, kings and emperors of entire, you know, regions of the land, like to struggle with what it means to find yourself literally, you know, wandering in that regard. Um, And also there's a lot of, you know, um, our main character, you know, again, not to dig too deep into spoilers, dealing with, with power being born into a position of, you know, incredible power and, and not really knowing how to follow the rule set that she inherited alongside, you know, that, that power. And then, you know, ultimately finding, you know, being punished for it. So it's a lot there. It really wasn't a plan. I don't have a, um, I have an emotional grasp on all the characters. I don't know everything that's going to happen to them, you know, over the course of hopefully, you know, many more books if we're able to put them out. Um, but that is something that I, I don't know if I wanted to hear it as a young creator, but I think as I was writing it, I was like, I think this is actually not a bad story to tell again and again and again, which is that it's okay to be lost and, um, it's okay to find yourself, even if you're moving a little bit further away from the people who wish that you stayed right next to them all the time. Um, that may sound harsh, but I, I feel like finding a balance in moving away from, from and not just your parents, I always, you know, strike it as parents because those are fun relationships to, to unwield, but, um, you know, systems into which you are born or in which you grow up, um, to a certain point, right around that YA age, when you start asking yourself questions and you start taking in more of the world than your parents are able to keep out. Um, and there's conflict there and, and it's conflict I find inherently, you know, interesting and, and also is conflict that is easy to, kind of explore in a, in a fantasy world where a lot of things are possible. But I like the idea that dwarves and elves and, you know, orcs and goblins have similar expectations to their, to their own cultures or religions or their families and traditions and um, that their children might not want to follow in those footsteps and, you know, walk their own, walk their own path. I, uh, but there's also the, co- the conflict of like self. So you, you think about the character Prince Aki, who has had all of these expectations growing up of what kind of grown up he wants to be. And then he has to balance like, do I want to be that kind of grown up 
Like, is that kind of grown up actually going to make me happy? I think that Mm. that's something that young people don't want to hear is like, you know what, your dreams, those aspirations that, you know, you've been telling people like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be this. Um, And you discover like, actually, you know, just because that's what you've been saying since you were six, that's not Mm -hmm. necessarily what's going to make you happy. Like, I think that that's such an important message. Yeah, I wanted to create a space um, and, and it's funny with, 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 with Prince Aki because he's such, he's such a delight to write and, and I really wanted to have a prince who's not, uh, who questions his, his princeliness, mm-hmm. you know, while also seeing, I don't know. I think he more than any of the other characters is like, I have the most faith in him to kind of find the right, the right way. Um, while also I think he's, he's the character who will always take on a little bit more than he actually should or is, or is comfortable with. Um, but yeah, that sense that like, it's okay to change your mind, even if it's scary. And at some point you need to take responsibility for yourself. And that's also really scary. So it's good to have friends who might not see eye to eye with you all the time or who just like challenge you or push you. Like, I don't know. I think that there's, there's a, there's a shying away from conflict and a lot of fiction for younger readers I find because we want to present the world as, as safe and all right to them. But I I know kids are so, so smart and they're so much smarter than adults and they're going to pick up on the fact that that is not, it's not honest and it's not true. So I think creating a world where there is conflict and, and, you know, resolutions aren't always clean and not everyone walks away happy all the time. It's not, it's not too much to, to expect even young kids to be able to actually, take that in and, and take it into their hearts and their heads and sit with it um, and walk away with something that feels more, more honest and more real. And, and it makes our characters, I think more, hopefully more memorable in the sense because they're not always reacting to things exactly the way it would feel better to do so. Right. Yeah. The, in the first, the first volume, is really about getting the band together. But then when we move into the second volume, now this family we've grown attached to is now like they're on their own separate little side quest. It's kind of like fellowship to two towers a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So like, how was it um, keeping that familial thread alive while each individual is finding their own way? Well, we always, um, this is kind of still a, a remnant of when the, when the book was being shipped, um, in floppies, you know, monthly, we really liked the idea of having this core, you know, kind of adventure, um, and the, and the kind of gravitational, you know, the, the molten core of the book is always going to be Lou's, uh, you know, journey, um, that we would be dipping in and out of these other characters. Um, and I think that that only came came together over the course of that first seven issues where we, you know, we have them all together because we knew that from the start, we wanted to get our characters on the road as fast as possible and have an adventure and not have the reader kind of slog through an issue and a half of lore and world building, but Mm -hmm. um, to, to do that work while we were actually having fun and getting to know people by spending time with them, getting to know these characters by being on an adventure with them. And then afterwards, it, it we, we turned out that Galat and I were just kind of like, man, we really, we, we want to keep the band together, but we also can't, you know, we didn't want to turn it into like these, these four are always going to be together and we always have to find reasons for them because that wouldn't feel right either, right? All of them came from a different part of the world and 
and I think that letting go and, and knowing the kind of, um, you know, we might, we might not meet again, but if we do, you know, it'll be, it'll be different. We'll have changed, um, leaving readers with that. But then we just had too much fun trying to figure out ways. And, and then I remember that the, the, the big arc of, um, of book two, the festival of life arc that came together when Galah just sent me one image of a blue, uh, in a desert with these giant hulking, wandering kind of giants next to her. And, and out of that spiraled, you know, that entire arc. And then I was like, okay, Oh, now I get it. Now we can bring them. Now we can bring some of them together again. And that kind of created this pathway where we have these story ideas where we can have our four, the core cast kind of like intersect at different times during their lives, like for big, you know, big story arcs. And then also kind of dip in and out of what they're doing in the meantime. Well, you know, leaving some, every time you kind of see characters again, we want something to have happened, you know, some, like life change or um, they're in a different situation, which kind of creates these fun pockets of, of opportunity for readers to think about what they were doing in the meantime. Um, you know, sometimes it's fun to only see a friend, you know, maybe after a year or two and, and they can regale you with everything they've done and all the things that they've seen since the last time you, you talked. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think some of my favorite moments of both books are those early issues in the second volume where they are apart, but knowing that they, they still exist as a unit in your head, but it's nice to like, just hang out with each individual personality for a brief moment. Yeah. I mean, we have so many ideas for, for those kinds of stories, but, um, I think with what we have in the TKO and the, in the two books, um, it's, it encompasses, you know, the first, what would have been the first two years of, of scales and scoundrels. And it's, it's the big, is these are the two big stories we wanted to, to tell. And I think that it was in you know, 20 issues at the time. And, and even today is a pretty sizable, uh, chunk of real estate, um, you know, for, for a creator owned book. But I think that, you know, when readers get to the end of volume two, I, I, I hope that they'll see that we're, we're kind of just getting started with, uh, with the potential. Um, and that within those two books we have, you know, pretty big variety of places and themes and characters and types of stories. So it's just, you know, it's almost like with t- these two books, we're presenting Scales and Scoundrels as, as hopefully a, a long-term, you know, fantasy uh, series and an and investment for readers and a, and a place, places they want to go with characters they want to, they want to be with. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly volume two leaves you wanting a lot more and seeing more interactions with this group. Uh, I am curious about the challenges and the joys of bringing this project that started over at image comics now to TKO your baby. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were a lot and I met, um, you know, we, we started working on this book and we were very excited to, to put it out at image. It was a, um, at the time, I mean, it was, it was a purely kind of a, a publishing financial decision where the, the realities of publishing a monthly comic, a creator owned through image puts you under you know, certain financial stresses. Um, and by the time we had put out two volumes of so 10 issues, it just became clear that we weren't able to keep up the monthly book. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of catch 22 is that you can't really put out a trade every five or six months because in the meantime, like, you know, Galad is working on these pages for hours and hours and days. 
And um, I wasn't in a position to pay out of pocket, and and I, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to ask him to do it for quote unquote free. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like we hadn't figured out. Like we knew the book was was popular and the trades were doing quite well. Uh, we hadn't really figured out how to monetize it to the point where it became viable in the form that we wanted it to be. So we decided to take a step back. You know, I was being financially conservative in the sense that I didn't want to go into the red, which is actually quite easy to do when you're putting out a creator-owned book. And then um, we both started other kind of work. Glad um, started working on um, a new series with Vault, and we kept putting, we kept doing scales. Like we never stopped working on it. And I always kind of felt that we would find a way to bring it back at image or find a way to self, uh, self publish somehow. But you know how life is when you're you know making best laid plans, but it was right around that time that I started talking with Zi Chun, who is the now publisher, um, of TKO about what would become TKO. And then just like we said at the start, after we kind of established what TKO would launch out of and, you know, we're looking at the marketplace and what kind of comic books are coming out. And, and at the time we started talking about, we should, you know, TKO should stretch its, its kind of wings into, into YA, into, into its kind of digest format for bookstores. Um, I just, I was just like, I think like, what about scales? Like we have, we have like 250 pages that have been unpublished you know, almost as just like an idea, like this might be a good way. Like if you're going to start with a new imprint or a new format, you know, maybe kicking the door down with, with uh, you know, 500 pages, is not a bad way to go. And, and, you know, lucky to, I was very lucky that they went for it and really saw, saw the value in it. And by that time, I think enough time had passed that readers who are still out there and, and, you know, bless them were excited for it. And are still, you know, there's people who've been waiting for new scales since, uh, since 2018. So we're excited mm-hmm. to, um, to get them back on board. But also it feels like enough time has passed that, um, the, the original volumes, like there might be a whole new, you know, a whole new subset of readers who are actually old enough now to, to get into scales and, and have a lot more of it to get into. Um, so I feel very, very fortunate that, you know, we're getting a second chance at this book because I really do, you know, want to want to spend a big chunk of my life telling more stories in this world. Uh, we also talked to Junie Ba about uh, Julia yeah. and on, on their faces, like these books look so different, but I feel like thematically they're kind of kindred spirits because they both are about like, okay, here's the world's expectation for you mm-hmm. versus your dreams and all, all of that stuff. Like how does Jelly, Jellia and scales and scandals as a unit define this new direction for TKL. So that's actually interesting. There is, I never thought about it in those terms. Oh, clearly there are, you know, with Junie's with, with jelly, uh, also such a beautiful, um, story, just like you said about inheriting, like a worldview or inheriting a sense of expectations, but the world just not putting you in a position where you can honor that or or you might not want to. I think with TKO, what we always try to do is to present, you know, first and foremost, really great comics by creators who we put in a position to do their best work unstressed, uh, hopefully and unhindered by, by, you know, schedules and stuff like that. And then to find a way, you know, honestly, just to tell stories that we feel are, 
that that deserve more limelight. You know, I think just by TKO's marketing and, and the way that we, um, you know, kind of do our own distribution, like trying to get more of the kinds of comics we love ourselves into more hands, um, into hopefully expanding the readership and, and broadening the marketplace. And I think what we wanted to do with the with the young adult with these with these graphic novels is to bring that the same kind of care and attention that we give to, you know, adult, more mature, arguably readers to, to a young adult space and show what types of stories, you know, not just to our readers, but also kind of like to other creators that we might want to work with is like, here's what's possible at TKO. Here's what we are willing to do both in terms of like the formatting, the marketing, the production values, um, you know, between Jellia and scales, there's three books, for you know like fifteen dollars times three um you're like you're it's a lot like just page count wise you know like it's it's kind of like showing all of your cards at once it's like here's what we're willing to do for readers here's what we want to do with creators here's here's who we are as a company um and i'm seeing you know a lot of pitches uh, as, as editor-in-chief and I, I think it's like we're barely scratching the surface in terms of what's possible with this kind of format um, at TKO for, for young readers and, and older readers who love YA comics as well. Mm. Well, as fans of TKO, I, I can tell you that this feels like a moment for mm-hmm. TKO yes. for us, you know, like all these three books come out and they, uh, all grabbed us, uh, tremendously. And I feel like there's going to be a big desire for them. The pre-orders have shipped. They're starting to show up in direct market comic book shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw Jalea at, uh, victory comics the other day, got to put our hands on a physical copy and awesome. it does feel amazing. Yes. And I can't wait to get physical copies of scales and scoundrels as well. Um, and we're going to have links in our show notes for our listeners so that they can find them, order them, uh, support your local shops and all that. But where can they find you, Sebastian, if they want to track you down online and uh, continue this conversation? Um, I am on, uh, oh, sorry, just blank. I am on <laughs> Twitter. I am S-G-I-R-N-E-R uh, on Twitter. I am also, uh, I just launched a, a new personal website, which I cobbled together for the launch of scales, SebastianGerner.com. You can reach me. Um, I'm, I'm fairly chatty on Twitter, so you can ping me there. Um, you can reach out at info at tkopresents.com. Those emails tend to find a way to me for any you know, specific questions, but probably on my website is an easy way. If you have any questions about scales or comments or, or just want to reach out or talk, talk shop, talk more about comic writing or editing, um, I always, I'm very happy to, to kind of like pull back the curtain surrounding the mysteries of, of the comic book creation. So anyone listening who wants to chat more should definitely reach out. <laughs> And Sebastian, before we say goodbye, is there anything that we haven't talked about regarding Scales and Scoundrels or TKO that you would want to talk about, mention, or have we covered all our bases? I think you've covered all the bases. Um, like you said, they're available now directly through uh, TKOPresents.com. Um, if, you, if you purchase them now, you get these really fun sets of trading cards, one per book. Uh, Jellia has a set as well. Those are not going to be available anywhere else. Um, we love to see uh, these books out in the world, like you said. So anyone who, who buys uh, a copy and has them shipped out, you know, please, if you're on social, take a picture, um, tag us at TKO Presents. Um, and we'll be sure to retweet you. And no, just in general, um, thanks so much for having me on and, and giving me a chance to talk more about our books. And I, I really hope that anyone listening who's 
who, uh, who liked uh, even a part of what I've been talking about um, grabs a copy and, and goes on an adventure. Uh, well, I think they will for sure. Uh, Sebastian, thanks so much. You have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> I thought of another boxing thing. No, no. That's, Is that a boxing thing? That's over. I, I don't even know. Like, I think so. There, I think that happens in Rocky can Four you or edit, Five. Can you edit that back to the beginning of this episode? <laughs> I cannot. I'm not going to do that. But uh, and the crowd oh, goes no, wild. No. You can't unleash this beast. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. I really, really apologize. But I hope you enjoyed this TKO Studio Spectacular. I hope you're appropriately psyched for their YA fiction that they're putting out this month. I hope all of you go out and support them. I think these books are truly special. I think you will really enjoy them no matter what your age is. And as always, I hope that listening to these creatives out in the world, making it work, encourages you to make your thing. Yeah, I mean, I know it does that for me. Like, I walk away from these conversations incredibly inspired and and thirsty to get out there and do my own art, my own podcast art, <laughs> that That's is. right. Uh, but Lisa, Lisa, you have an actual piece of art out soon. You can now pre-order listeners Weapon X. I feel like actual piece of art is a little generous. No, I don't. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. I love what you did for this uh, parody celebration of Barry Windsor Smith. Thanks. All of the credit actually goes to Will Hoffnecht at 100% Comics. He wrangled 50 artists to each recreate one page from Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X, and I got a splash page, <laughs> and um, and I definitely put a, a Lisa spin on a it. Lisa twist. I, it I, I looks can't do it without so a little bit great, of great Lisa. I love Thank it so you. much. I'm actually pretty darn proud you of it. You <laughs> should be. You did such a gangbusters job putting that together, and you really put that together. You collaged that thing. I did because um, I don't have the tools nor the talent. But I am resourceful. Yeah, give yourself some credit, Lisa. Uh, and, and, you know, this is the first published in print Lisa Gullickson art. <laughs> you know, you guys out there, you comic book couples counseling fanatics, you need to pre-order this. It's 20 bucks. It's, it's going to be great. There's a link in the show notes. Click on that thing. Head on over to our Twitter page, our Instagram. You can see the piece that Lisa did for this. I'm... I'm so proud of Lisa getting a piece of art into Weapon X. I am like beside myself yeah, thrilled. Good, good. And I think it's going to lead to me making more art. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, so there you have it. That's this week's TKO Spectacular. Next week, we are going to return to our Read and Sue conversation. It'll be our concluding episode on the Fantastic Four talking about all 16 issues of Mark Bagley and Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four, which I think is an underrated run. And I think he's going to be a good capper now that we're doing all 16 issues. And of course, we'll be applying Gretchen Rubin's 
the four tendencies where, um, who was it on Twitter who said that they were able to talk about the four tendencies at some kind of dinner party? James Blundell, at James underscore Blundell on Twitter. I would go to any dinner party that included James <laughs> underscore Blundell because he's talking about what I want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it is really special when one of our listeners not only wants to like, engage with us regarding comic books, but our love experts. Yes. Very cool. And you should see Lisa. She lit up when James tweeted at us. And Lisa, you're going to be sad when The Four Tendencies is over. For me, The Four Tendencies are never over. <laughs> well, we have to move on to another love expert when we talk Loki and Loki in regards to Journey into Mystery. Technically, that is a one pod stand. Oh, yeah. So we Though get the- I did say last time we did a one pod stand. I did find an article. I'll find an article. Cool. Okay, Brad, it's time to drive our fantastic car of love in two dramatically different directions. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. And oh gosh, please give some love to Josh Cornelin. You can find them over at Josh Cornelin. That's C-O-R-N-I-L-L-O-N on Twitter because they gave us the most amazing episode 100 poster and I'm still not over it. But Lisa, Mm -hmm. where can our lovely listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.